I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Hi, guys. Our episode today is going to be super exciting, but it also does focus on some tough subjects, and one of them is suicide. So we do just want to issue a trigger warning for that. If that's a sensitive topic for you, you might not enjoy the middle section of the episode. We have a special guest with us today. Dana Hampson is a licensed professional counselor. She attended the University of Montevallo, where she earned her bachelor's degree in psychology. She went on to pursue a master's degree in community agency counseling at Auburn University and later completed her master's degree in business administration at Lincoln Memorial University. She founded The Balanced Life in 2014, and that's a provider of mental health services in Madison, Alabama. Welcome, Dana. Hi, thanks for having me. Yay. Well, Dana, tell us a little bit about yourself. Do you have any cats or dogs? I do. Uh, We are animal lovers for sure in our house. Currently, right now, we have two cats, Oliver and Lucky. And then we have one dog, Adler. And all of our animals are rescues. They've been pretty much rescues since we've been married, every animal we've owned. And so we are down a cat. We lost one of our old kitties not too long ago, but we... um, are holding steady with the two that we've got and our dog. Well, it sounds like you have an exciting household there. I have to ask, is the cat named Lucky, is Lucky missing anything? Like He's not. He just was lucky he didn't uh, suffer a pretty negative fate. My husband found him um, in the wheel bed of a truck and um, we probably curled up to stay warm up on Montesano Mountain and brought him home. So our daughter, who was in elementary school at the time, named him Lucky as a result of him being lucky. That's lucky. Many luckies, uh, animals-wise, are like missing an eye or, or a limb or oh, a tail. Right. No. Or both. He's got most of his parts. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's missing the parts he's supposed to miss, but the rest of his <laughs> parts are still intact. We like to call that brain tumor removal. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. We had the, the that brain tumor removed right off the bat. Okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Dana, you're in private practice. I am. Tell me a little bit about how you came to be in private practice. Did you have other careers, any particular areas of focus for your career so far? Yeah, I actually didn't really even consider private practice until about six and a half years ago. I have worked in community mental health pretty much my entire career. I had one year where I worked um, with sort of a grassroots organization that helped adults with autism, but the rest of the time it was in mental health. And so worked in a myriad of locations that included residential treatment, psychiatric hospitalization, foster care, in-home counseling, um, outdoor residential treatment, almost all with kids, interestingly oh, wow. enough. My, most of my career was with children and adolescents. And then my last job, I would say it was the catalyst for me realizing that I am better suited to be my own boss and to work a job that allows a lot of flexibility and creativity. And so um, my husband and I decided to take a big giant risk and started the balanced life with just me. And over the last six years, I've added six other therapists. And so we have myself and six independent contractors that work with us. And this is probably where I'll be for 
the rest of my career, I would imagine, because it's exactly what I need to be doing. It's a perfect fit for me. And it allows me to get to do some training and some um, practice consultation as well. And I teach part-time at a local university. It's just lots of fun, different things to do that would have been really hard in a traditional job. Yeah. Mm. All the things that I did up until this point um, from a career perspective, just sort of set the stage for having a good understanding of what works for me and what doesn't work in terms of a workplace and co-workers and clientele. And this is this has been the perfect storm of all the good things that make work enjoyable. So the last six years have been the best of my whole career, for sure. That's amazing. That's awesome. I mean, gosh, and what a good example. I think that certainly people in the mental health field share a lot of life experiences with people in the veterinary field as far as, you know, having a vulnerable client base that you have to advocate for the burnout that you sometimes I'm sure experience as a mental health professional. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that makes you, um, you and people in your profession really, I mean, you guys, I think just get veterinarians really well. You understand us. I think so. I'm curious as to veterinary professionals versus um, human medical professionals. Do you find that there's any differences between I guess the things that affect them and um, about how many of people in those fields do you have that you work with? Do you feel like it's like a a larger number compared to other professions? Um, I don't. Um, I actually see far more engineers and stay-at-home moms. That's largely my caseload. Mm -hmm. But I have several veterinary professionals that I see right now in two, um, you said human medical. That was funny. So two human <laughs> medical professionals currently. So, but interestingly, I also have two clients who are spouses of veterinarians. Um, and so I hear, oh about it from the, right, so I hear about it from the spouse perspective um, and they own clinics. So, you know, kind of hearing their involvement from a spouse perspective and business partner perspective. I think the number probably is still pretty low for just medical professionals in general seeking help. Mm. I've you know, read about the, the suicide studies that have been done with veterinarians, but I, I would be interested to see just what it is for medical professionals. I do see a lot of nurses, but you know, for some reason, there still seems to be a lot of stigma with doctors and feeling like it's okay for them to ask for help. And so the few doctors that I've seen over the years, and I include just kind of everybody veterinary in that number, have been sort of a little bit more of a uh, anomaly, I think, in terms of being invested in their own mental health and realizing that they have to take time for that, that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how busy you are. If you let your mental health decline, you're not going to function in any of the other areas of your life. It is entirely necessary to be able to be fully healthy and fully well-rounded that you're taking care of what's going on in your psyche. So I have not seen a lot. I've not done any kind of study, so I can't say scientifically why. I don't see very many, but I know of my colleagues at the office, most of us don't see a whole lot of uh, medical professionals. And I do assume that it has a lot to do with, especially if it's a doctor, because I'm a doctor, I should know how to take care of myself. Mm. I have extensive training, so I should have, you know, I should be able to do this. Or I just have crazy, crazy, crazy hours and it's just not a priority. You neglect yourself long enough, the problems are going to, they're going to manifest themselves in lots of different ways for sure. So I'm pleased with the folks that have come out and seen me, see my colleagues or see other 
clinicians. But I think we've got, still got some work to do with breaking down the stigma for mental health for, with men, number one, because I think there's still a lot of stigma there. And then just mental health in general um, for, you know, folks in the medical field. Yeah. And maybe to some degree, it comes back a little bit to that. I can't. Mm -hmm. I can't take time off in the middle of the day to go to my own appointment. I sure. can't. I mean, those those words have come out of my mouth before mm -hmm. um, before I realized that. I, first of all, just have to ask and then structure my life around it. And what I found is some employers aren't tolerant of that sort of thing. But you know what? Some are. Mm -hmm. Some say, yeah, you absolutely need to prioritize that. Let's talk about how we can make it work. And gosh, those are the angels. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> especially with, you know, with the environment. Well, who knows what COVID-19 is going to bring as far as the environment with veterinarians moving forward and like the veterinary supply. But, you know, what I hear constantly is I can't find an associate. I can't find an associate. I can't find an associate. Everyone wants to be a relief vet. No one wants to settle down. And I think that those are the types of quality of life changes that employers are going to have to start embracing mm -hmm. or they're going to continue to have trouble finding somebody to fill these positions. We're talking long term. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that um, I, I don't know if any if any owner veterinarians are listening, but some of them might their eyeballs might be popping out of their head right now at the thought of, you know, allowing an associate time to have a mental health appointment in the middle of the day once a week. I know what they're saying. We can't afford that. You know, it's XYZ reasons, you know, but things are going to have to change somehow. Well, I would argue you can't afford not to. I think it's really mm. short-sighted for a practice owner um, or a manager of any sort, whatever the business is, to say, you know, we can't allow you to take this time off because what's what I hear about with people who worked in in this case veterinary practices or managed practices is they talk about all of this drama that seems to go on as people are stressed they are working really long hours they're dealing with difficult patient situations they're dealing with difficult patient owners um, so the environment just is super stressful which leads to people not being particularly productive um, they have lower focus, they're less patient, they provide poorer customer service. And then that obviously long term then impacts the relationship you have with your patients and your reputation in the community. So if practice owners could look a little more bigger picture and say, you know what, if I really encourage people to take care of themselves, if I incentivize mental health, if I incentivize physical health, if I encourage people to, you know, take good care of themselves, then I'm going to have a better team of people, which means we are going to provide better services and we're going to have a better reputation in town. But it, even in most of the places I worked, it was like, we have to look at this quarter. We're looking at this quarter's numbers, you know, or this quarter's productivity rather than like, but what happens if we look at, if we implemented some programs over the next year or two, what would that do to productivity? So it really is going to require a pretty big mind shift with, you know, maybe veterinarians that have been in practice for a really long time or owned a practice for a long time to begin to see that, you know, if I did encourage my staff to take better care of themselves, I actually probably would have a more profitable and productive business and a happier, healthier workplace. I don't think probably. I feel very certain that would be what would happen. But it's just a matter of getting to that point. Yeah. And I think, and I have absolutely no data to back this up, but <laughs> I mean, 
in um, in the veterinary hospitals that I've worked at, every single one of them, there has been intermittent crises of people constantly calling out, you know, where, you know, the clinic isn't understaffed. We have enough employees, but people are constantly sick. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you say that's with a virus or some sort of like sneezing or vomiting, you know, that kind of thing, or whether the person just can't face coming to work, that's a type of sickness. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think that people are are still having a lot of trouble understanding that. Mm-hmm. Like, they're like, oh, you bum, you know, get up and go to work, you know, that kind of thing. But if you have a staff member that's repeatedly calling out to work, like, that's a red flag that they need somebody to, some help, some intervention, I think. And sure. I don't mm-hmm. think it means kick them in the butt and tell them to do better. It might be that they need, like, maybe they got some crap going on, mm-hmm. like relationships outside of work. Uh, maybe the thought of going to work is so stressful. Mm-hmm. I've worked veterinary jobs before, stayed there for years, and kind of had this leading thought of, like, if I got into a fender bender, I wouldn't have to go today. Wow. Mm-hmm. And when I started having that kind of thought, it was like, okay, right. yeah, <laughs> this isn't good. That, yeah, we got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> something's got to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've had those exact same thoughts. Yeah. yeah, I think it's more common than people want to admit. I don't think that many people would admit that, but I'm sure other people have that thought. So, like, yeah. if your job is that bad where y- the stress of going every day is like, man, I might consider a several thousand dollar problem just to not have to go today. Like, that, we got a major problem. Like, mm-hmm. we can't. That's not OK. Yeah. So we got to start intervening before it gets there. Yeah. And learning how to say no, I think, is probably one of those one of those things. Mm-hmm. Speaking of veterinary professionals in general, what would you say to a veterinary professional? that feels like they can't say no to a colleague or a supervisor? Well, I probably would start with asking them why they don't feel like they can, because nobody has the physical inability, as long as they have vocal cords, to say no. Like, everybody's got the ability to do it. So it's really a matter of, I don't choose to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would want to have a conversation with them about, so why don't you choose to? So what are you telling yourself um, is going to happen if you say no. And so sometimes it's what I'm telling myself is what I've heard. If you refuse to do what I say, this will be the consequence. But a lot of times people have decided that they know what someone would say if they said no. And they, in the cognitive behavioral therapy world, we call it catastrophizing. So they they are assuming worst case scenario. Um, there's another fun one they're forecasting, which is I know what's going to happen if I say this. And it's usually some combination of epic disasters that will happen if they do. So I feel like it's important to help people examine where this I can't say no comes from. Um, What are they telling themselves that supports that belief? Sometimes we'll even play out. What do you think? What are possibilities of what could happen? Because even most people's worst case scenarios of if they said no are still survivable and maybe not even that bad. Sometimes Frankly, losing your job is not the worst thing that could happen. Sometimes it opens doors to amazing things in your life. So if we just quit being afraid of what might happen if I say no, then we allow ourselves to just kind of deal with whatever's going to come along as a result of that. And what might happen if I say no is I get a good result. And I have someone who respects that or who doesn't buck up against it or who maybe pouts a little bit and then they get over it. I have a good outcome as a result of it. But to me, either way, uh, if I say no, I'm either going to feel good about the fact that I set a good boundary for myself and I will be able to deal with whatever consequences come from that. But people 
get really rooted in what they think is going to happen if they do it. And then they talk themselves out of even acting. Hmm. So I hear that a lot. I can't, I have to, I have to say yes. And I'm like, you, you actually don't, you don't have to do much of anything except breathe and drink water and eat occasionally and eliminate and sleep. There's your have to's. The rest of it are things you're choosing to do. So if you're choosing to say no, why? If you're choosing to say yes, why? And helping people see that they're really in charge of that. Not nobody else is. Yeah. Gosh, that's uh, liberating. I mean, yeah, (laughs) but also (laughs) (laughs) scary. I see myself in so many of the things that you just said, and I'm sure that veterinary professionals, I mean, everybody, bosses, associates, staff, (laughs) I mean, probably everybody has had that happen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what I found in in veterinary medicine in particular, and maybe it's different in other areas, but I've always practiced in the southeast. There is a real almost like a martyr complex, I think, among veterinarians and veterinarians seem to be very entrenched in the status quo tradition. These are all of the things that I had to do. I was made by my superiors to do these things. You're going to do them even if it doesn't make sense for someone to do it anymore, I feel as someone who's come through that all of you guys should have to endure all of this. And I think that's really unfortunate. And I've seen that a lot. I mean, from even in veterinary school, I mean, I think that the science is there that says working these insanely long 24 hour plus shifts is bad for you and bad for patient outcomes. And yet we still make medical professionals do it. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with on-call, taking young veterinarians and kind of throwing them out there and saying, here's the on-call phone, I'll see you in, you know, a few days, um, where they in a situation where they have no support. And it's kind of, you know, laughed about in a patronizing way, like, oh, all right, doc, now's your case, bye, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or whatever. And yeah. I think it's kind of, what's the term when you find joy in someone else's suffering? Sadomasochism? Uh, uh, schadenfreude? Oh, whoa. I don't know. Well, that could I, be wrong. I was thinking like JJ, a sadomasochist. She's busted out the German. What's happening? Right. Anyway, I feel like there's an element of that. Like, uh, well, we had to do it all. Now I'm making you go through all of the same stuff, even though it wasn't rewarding, even though it probably damaged my relationships with my family, even though it probably damaged me, even though I am completely burnt out now after X number of years of practice, you know, like how long might most veterinary careers be if we didn't torture new people? (laughs) I don't know. Right. (laughs) Just a thought. Sounds like a really nice plan. (laughs) I don't feel like a lot of people are on board with my plan, though. Right. Yeah. Please tell me if you're on board. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of systems, whether it's with the veterinary science field or it's certainly I ran across it, up, ran up against it, actually, in a lot of mental health places with just that's just the way we've always done it. Mm. Um, and this yeah. being so rooted in tradition or in old policy and procedure that doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't apply anymore. It's not best practice anymore. And it can be super frustrating because especially if you're entry level or just kind of getting started in your career and you kind of feel like I have to go along with this uh, if I'm going to make it at all. I don't have a voice yet. And that can feel very disempowering and lead to people feeling like I can't say no, I have to do these things if I want to, you know, progress at all in my career field. JJ, what do you think from the veterinary support staff side? Um, it, It's similar. There's definitely like a sort of feeling like 
if you're sick, you can't call in sick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're having an off day, it, you know, it's not going to fly. Um, there's also, I mean, when I started off, the, the clinic I started in was pretty small. I mean, it was like two doctors and they had maybe two techs that worked full time and I was the part time. But I was kind of like the other two techs, bitch, basically. <laughs> They're like, go yep. get me a dog and... You know, you work every weekend, you do all the treatments over the weekend and the holidays. We get to have those days off. You're the one that wants to have a career in this, so you have to pay your dues. So this was kind of a uh, not a fun time, but I didn't know any better. So I'm like, you know, I was just hungry enough to take whatever they would give me. So you learn a lot, but it's maybe not the best method <laughs> and environment to do that in. JJ, you just said the words paying your dues and mm -hmm. i had like a visceral response to it because mm -hmm. it's like yes that's what always people say they're like well you got to pay your dues and um i was thinking just the other day you know i have been out of school veterinary school over a decade okay i have been out of school over a decade functioned on my own been in multiple positions you know <laughs> i own my own business okay and even so the other day someone said oh you're just a baby and I'm like, okay, like at what point are the dues paid? No one has laid that out, okay? Is it one year? Is it five? Is it 10? Or is it 25 years? Because a lot of us don't make it 25 years into this career. Mm -hmm. So like, where exactly does the dues paying cut off? Like, please tell me, you know? <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, that's... Uh, Clearly, I have some unresolved <laughs> anger issues about that. As long as there's somebody that's been there longer than you, they may throw that at you from yeah. my experience, which is not cool. Right. I mean, yeah. Mm. I mean, at a certain... Anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you hit on for just a minute the high suicide rate of veterinarians and veterinary staff. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's kind of been talked about uh, for years. It I entered veterinary school in 2004. So during our orientation, we had a lot of people bring this up. Veterinarians have a high suicide rate, like seek care. There was even um, free counseling services. It was like a student counselor who was coming through at the same time, but they would like, you know, this is the student counselor. You can meet with her. It's free. And they kind of basically handled it like, mm, like, just don't let yourself get too stressed out, you know, was was a thing. But still, it was like, what kind of advice is that? Like, how do people don't let themselves get too stressed out? It's a uh, gosh, it's like a cumulative effort. But anyway, um, more recently, some studies have come out that I think hit the media and a lot more attention has been paid to this issue that combined with the specific really tragic deaths of a few key veterinarians. And so veterinary suicide rates have kind of come into focus. But one thing that I kind of thought was interesting, but not not maybe necessarily hitting the nail on the head was some of the media handling focuses on things like making sure that veterinarians ha have like limited access to medications that can be used to commit suicide and things like that. And while certainly I think those controls need to be in place, I would favor a more well-rounded mm -hmm. um, approach. You can lock up the weapons, but I think we probably need to start really focusing on why is this happening? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, is that a studyable thing? Can you study why suicides happen? Or since by its nature, suicide kind of removes the subject from the equation, is it impossible to study? Well, you probably could study, if people were willing to participate in it, people who have contemplated or attempted but didn't succeed, okay. um, which is 
you know, the, I understand that a large percentage of veterinarians now are women um, yeah. and women do tend to attempt more, but don't succeed as often um, as men. And so, you know, that would be potentially a very informative study would be to talk to people who had been there um, and to talk about what were, what would you consider the risk factors, or maybe even to study people who would admit to having depression or anxiety, you know, what do you see as the risk factors for you? But I would imagine if you surveyed most veterinarians, they could probably talk about what it is that makes this particular profession so risky. And I mean, I was even thinking about that. I was like, I wonder why. And I think you combine people who probably go into this field because they're compassionate. So they have a heart for helping, um, but then are also very driven. You know, any medical professional is going to largely spend a lot of time in school or getting a lot of education. So you've got people with pretty hardcore work ethics who are also very compassionate, probably don't hear much about work-life balance in school. And then you're dealing with a patient population that can't advocate for itself. So, you know, you are relying on pet owners for information and they are human and potentially, you know, can be challenging to deal with. So you've got a challenging population and then you've got this probably personality mix of drive and compassion Maybe you sprinkle in some fear about the giant student loan debt they accrued while they were in school. Um, and you've got sort of this high pressure, again, that I can't say no. I've got to work however much they say to work. Um, I can't take care of myself because I don't have time. And then by the time they they make the decision to end their life, you know, it's because the cumulative effect of all of that pressure and stress and lack of self-care has resulted in feeling like there's not another option, that things are too hopeless to come back from. And the terminal decision has been made. Yeah. Gosh. Mm. I mean, I think you're right on track. All of those things do kind of come together in our career in a kind of in a unique way, I think. Mm-hmm. And um Certainly, uh, economic distress is is got to play a role. Whenever you were saying that about you have to advocate for the the patient, but you're limited to what you can do based on what the client allows you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you can try and just be like, well, you can't judge people. You can't you can't do anything about it. But you can only tell yourself that so many times because mm-hmm. you're like, I can do something about it. I'm just not allowed to. And mm-hmm. then when you have a negative outcome, a lot of times it turns out they're going to blame you for that. It's your fault because you didn't do this for free or, you know, you, you let my animal die. And I'm like, we didn't want to. (laughs) Right. That is tough. I think even in other careers, dealing with the general public is hard. People are, well, they're people. Mm -hmm. They're just complex and you never know how they're going to react. Sometimes the public sort of treats us like punching bags especially the non-veterinarian staff, I think, is who takes the brunt of that. The receptionists, um, the technical staff. <laughs> Sorry, there is a dog barking in the background. That's yeah. yours. Okay, mm-hmm. stay in his dog. Downstairs. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, there are some veterinary groups that have kind of taken it upon themselves to say, enough is enough. We're not tolerating this behavior from clients anymore. And I think that that is a good... Uh, thought. Those groups range from mild to potentially militant um, (laughs) levels of, uh, we're not going to take this abuse from owners anymore. But I mean, pet owners sometimes band together on the internet and 
basically attempt to ruin the reputation of veterinarians after a single negative case outcome. Um, I don't see that happening with human medicine, right? I mean, I maybe it does, and I just am not aware of it. But to me, this seems to be a phenomenon unique to veterinary hospitals where people will just, you know, one thing upsets them. They share a post on social media, absolutely just slamming the veterinary hospital relating things that are usually completely incorrect in their mind. It's right. But like factually and medically, it's usually very suspect. Mm -hmm. And then it just explodes and goes viral on social media. And then people storm onto Google reviews. They storm onto the Facebook page. They go pick it outside of the veterinary hospitals and things like that. And the stress then um, in the social media age of a single negative review then becomes so huge because there are clinics that have been shut down and, and some prominent veterinarians who have committed suicide that that's been apparently a very, a, a strong contributing factor mm -hmm. in some of those deaths. So is there a way to get clients to behave better? <laughs> <laughs> trying to think of a way to phrase it well sure i think so i think you know a lot of it has to do with how you train your staff to handle those things you know i've noticed i'm i'm generally a pretty nice person when i go in uh to you know and, and interact with someone at a front desk but you know there's been times where you know i a, a good example is if i think the last time i had to call verizon and talk to a customer service person it was a couple of years ago and i was already in a mood um and i was mad about something on the bill and this poor person on the other end i just was like you know i was already irritated just going to give them a piece of my mind and this person was masterful in managing me. Wow. They had a very, uh, the, the voice was not, it's like ba a balance between soothing, but not patronizing. She was able to really express concern about the problem I had, really listen to what I had to say, didn't interrupt me, um, assured me she was going to do what she could to help me out. And I could just feel the wind going out of my angry sails while I was on the phone with her. And I got off the phone and I was like, wow, she really handled me great. Now, I know and have heard about situations where an owner has come in and was just ugly, like, you know, using terrible language, threatening behavior. And that's a whole different ballgame. And to me, that's a practice management problem if that's tolerated. You know, if someone's yeah. going to come in and be threatening and abusive to staff. That should be something that is a workplace culture that is just not tolerated. <laughs> but I think there's this middle ground of, of clients that maybe come in that are dealing with X, Y, and Z in their life, plus they're worried about their pet. And with the right customer service person at the front desk, they might be able to manage that. But I think a lot of times people at the front don't feel empowered to manage it or they don't have the training to manage it. So they almost add a little kerosene to the angry fire, you know, just by either acting passive, which mm -hmm. fuels somebody who's already mad, right? Or they act, they get defensive or pissy, which is the very last thing you mm -hmm. want to do to an angry person at the front desk. And so uh, then the swing, the pendulum swings, and then maybe the other group of front desk folks might tend to be, you know, very, very accommodating and almost kind of condition this person's behavior, like that we're, we're, we're going to tolerate this. You act like a bully. We're going to bend over backwards to give you whatever it is you want. So yeah. I think it starts with 
having staff that know that the practice manager has their back or the owner has their back and uh, supports them in being assertive with the folks at the front desk. And assertive is that I am straightforward, but I'm also kind. So I, you know, can say to a customer, you know, sir, we're doing everything we can to help you out. Um, but I'm going to have to talk to the doctor about what she wants to do with this. Or, you know, I'm going to need to ask you to stop yelling so that we can have a conversation because I really do want to help you solve this problem. But I don't think, I don't know if my 20 year old self could have done that. And I don't know what, because I didn't have any training in it, but I did learn through doing some retail, working in retail, you know, how to kind of diffuse customer situations before, it turns into, you know, somebody's ripping stuff off the walls. So I think, I I don't know, maybe y'all can educate me about that. I just, Mm. my theory is there's probably not a whole lot of conflict management training and assertiveness training and communication (laughs) skill training that goes on for front desk staff or even for veterinarians to feel like, I know how to have these conversations and to not take this crap personally, because this isn't about me, no matter what they say, if I've done the best I can, it's not about me. And to be able to feel empowered to redirect this client and also, you know, to know when the line is that they just have to go. And even if they get mad and post a Google review, that just may be what we have to deal with. But I want my staff to know they don't have to be mistreated and they do have a voice when it comes to customers, but they have a responsibility to be good customer service representatives for this business. When you said assertiveness training. Why did you laugh? Isn't that commonplace at most workplaces where they do a great job training their staff? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know that. Okay, I was staring at you with a, like, uh, <laughs> nobody does. You. Nobody. And it's Crickets. crazy because it would solve so many problems that we spent some time, like, Maybe we spend a little less time perusing the policy and procedure manual and a little more time on what assertiveness is and how to communicate effectively Ooh. and how to solve crises before they actually become a crisis. That'd be, yeah. we'd, we'd be a lot more productive if we did that. Oh, mm-hmm. I agree. You yeah. know, and in, in the Southeast, I think community at large, the idea of an assertive woman is very scary, Dana. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's really a word. It's, it's really a word that starts with a B. Mm-hmm. That's what we think about assertive women in the South. You're saying bitchy? The B word, yeah. The, yeah I mean, you, this is an explicit rated podcast. Don't don't be shy. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> we try not to say the F word, but... Wow, I've been holding back. <laughs> Sounding all professional and not saying shit I really want to say. So, Brene Brown says the F bomb on her podcast. Hey, well, Brene says it. It should be open season for you guys. That's what I said. Mm-hmm. And if people can't handle it, then they need to fucking listen to something else. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. Sorry, no, you have to yeah. edit. No, it's fine. Yeah, we got it. We got it. <laughs> ben, Ben, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I think the idea of assertiveness training, and maybe it's different in other parts of the country. I've only ever lived in the Southeast, but here, I think if you say the words assertiveness training for women, Oh, that makes people really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. We spend most of our time conditioning young girls and then women to just be passive aggressive. That's just yeah. sort of the Southern way. It's like, oh, bless your heart. Right. I don't but really mean bless your heart. I mean, mm-mm. F you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And so, but we don't, we, we have a very strong culture that, and I, I don't know that they have to teach it anywhere else because I think... Um, you visit other parts of the country, people are just generally much more straightforward. Hmm. 
almost to the point of being a little abrasive or aggressive, you know, but I think there's a, a nice middle ground where we just say what we need to say in a straightforward way with empathy towards the person's feelings, that this person may have a feeling about what I'm about to say, because it may be difficult to hear, but it doesn't mean I don't say it. Right. And yeah. I, they, they may choose to get their feelings hurt about it or get angry at me. And that's okay. But it's not going to be because I said something that was inflammatory or hurtful, because you don't do that when you're assertive. It isn't about you're actually not stepping on toes because you're being straightforward and courteous in the way you present that information. What are some strategies that veterinarians can take to sort of take a step back and isolate themselves? I almost have to create like a separate identity when I'm at work that I kind of put on like a suit and then take off at the end of the day. Like I actually think about it like I'm acting uh, when, when clients are there. So what sort of strategies can can veterinarians take to try to insulate themselves from some of the things that clients say that might be very hurtful? That's a great question. I used to be a manager at a large, well, a clinical director at a large inpatient substance abuse treatment program. And as you can imagine, people coming off of drugs sometimes are grouchy. Yeah. Really grouchy. It, Um, It seems like that would be true. Right. So they're not sleeping well. They're coming off drugs. They're in a strange place. They can't keep anything down. It's a pretty miserable first few days. Um, And so they, in in inpatient treatment, often would decide that the target of their terrible feelings should be the therapist that was working with them. So they didn't, they couldn't see their family. And so you just take your shit out on whoever's right in front of you. And so usually that was their therapist. And so I had to spend a lot of time talking to therapists about not taking that personally, that even if they said, you know, you're keeping me from my spouse and you're not letting me make a phone call and you were the worst therapist ever and all sorts of hateful things that they needed to remember that it isn't a, it isn't about them. This person is is struggling and this person's suffering and you just happen to be in the way. You just happen to be a convenient target and they are taking it out on you. So what I would have to coach them to be able to do was First of all, to remind themselves it's not personal. And sometimes they'd even put up like a sign that said it's not about you or it's not personal. So they had a visual to remind themselves on tough days. And I'd have them put it up on the wall behind where the client sat. So they'd be looking directly at it while this client was spewing angry venom all over them. But then also for them to feel like they had a voice to say, look, I understand you're angry, but yelling at me is not going to help this situation. I can't help you solve the problem. If you are so angry, I'm going to have to call staff in here to help me out. So I'm going to need you to sit down and take a breath so we can work on this. So they had to learn how to not take it personally to even be effective with these clients at all. And they had a short period of time to do it. So I would think something kind of similar would be what veterinary professionals need to do as well is number one, is if I know I'm doing the best I can, then that's the thing I have to go home with at night. Even if the client doesn't think I did the best I could. I know whether I did. And I can feel comfortable about that fact. And I think feeling like, especially um, like we talked about with workplace culture, if I feel like it's okay to be assertive with a client who's being ugly, that really does help you not internalize a lot of that. If you can be assertive with them and say, look, I understand you're angry, but a personal attack on me is not okay. That would be a very liberating thing to be able to say to a client. But if I feel like I've just got to take it and take it and take it, that is going to impact how I feel about myself. So, you know, those would be two things I would start with is the reminding myself that this actually isn't about me. 
and that I'm doing the very best I can and that I do need to verbalize if somebody's really crossing the line and being abusive towards me, I, I need to feel like I can be assertive to them about what's going on. And I think for the reception staff and the, the non-veterinarian staff, that's going to have to be a, a management down Absolutely. Sort of behavior modeling situation. There's no way that a receptionist or other staff member could feel comfortable saying something like that to the owner, no matter how much it needed to be said, unless they knew that the owner of the hospital and the management was going to back them up. Mm -hmm. I mean, mean, I've worked at places where we absolutely knew that they would not back us up, Mm -hmm. Um, where, you know, you would have a client that would come in and break line in front of other clients and demand to be seen immediately. And that sort of behavior was accepted because that particular client came in a lot and spent a lot of money. You felt like you you couldn't be protected, I guess. And it's also a problem that that happens a lot is that you might have a client who behaves one way with the staff and the different way with the doctor. So oh, the yeah. doctor may not see it. And you, I guess you kind of have to have enough trust in each other not to think because there are staff members that would blow things out of proportion. But I don't know. It's it's very frustrating when that happens because you're, you're just like, hey, he just chewed me out because I was trying to tell him about this medication that you recommended. And then the doctor goes in there and they're like, oh, you want me to take you have have my dog take this antibiotic? Oh, OK, that's fine. And I'm like, I just said those same words and you ripped my head off. What gives you? Yeah, I think it would be very tough to be in an environment where you your legs are cut out from under you by your boss. And if I were working with somebody like that, I would really have to help them problem solve and think about, is it worth it to stay? If you don't feel like you have any power to change anything, if you don't feel like um, there's any room for improvement or you have a boss that refuses to do anything differently, then you do have to do sort of a cost benefit analysis of, is this job worth it for me? You know, is would potentially not having some money for a while be something I could tolerate? Am I in a position to do that? Could I just do something different for a while so that I'm no longer allowing myself to be a part of a system that's destroying my mental health? You know, at the end Mm -hmm. of the day, really, is there... And I recognize I can already just hear people saying, well, Dana, that's real, that's real easy for you to say. But I, at the end of the day, when we think about how short our lives are and how much time we spend at work, I really do think we have to examine, is this where I really want to spend it? Is this, do I really have to be here? Is there any possible way I cannot do this? And I've actually had a number of folks in this profession and in other professions where we've had that conversation. What they realized was, I, I'm going to figure it out. I am not going to continue to tolerate being treated this way or to be in a toxic workplace because, you know, is it worth having my soul sucked out of me for money? No, it's not. There's like this feeling of like you're trapped there sometimes. I mean, it almost seems like the places that are the worst are the ones you feel the most trapped in. Hmm. That's how I felt is that uh, plus I mean, during that time, it was I was younger and I just felt like if I left, that would be giving up or showing weakness or saying that I couldn't handle what was going on. And it's kind of the opposite. It's more acknowledging that your mental health and your happiness is worth more than worrying about what somebody that's your superior thinks of you. Absolutely. Here, here, JJ. Yes. (laughs) And those kind of thoughts, JJ, are are similar to what a lot of people I have that, you know, when I say, why, why do you stay there? Um, they'll say things like that. Well, I don't want to 
I don't want to give up or I'm not a quitter. Or Mm -hmm. I said when I started, I was going to stay five years, but they lock themselves into things that are just arbitrary. It doesn't matter um, if you said you'd stay there five years. If you hate it and there is no there's no avenue to try to improve it, then you do have to say, so if I don't have to do this, why am I choosing to? And that's an imp- that's a powerful question. Why am I choosing to? Because I don't have to. Uh, you know, when we were starting our business, we thought, well, you know what? If this fails, then what's the worst that can happen? Well, we could be bankrupt. Would that suck? Yes, it would suck really bad. But could we survive it? Sure. Could I still get a job? Yeah, I could wait tables if I needed to. There's. Mm-hmm. Could we live in a one a studio apartment, my husband, daughter, and I? Would that suck? Sure. Could we, what if we had to move back in with my parents? Well, that would suck. But could we do it? Yes. And so I, everything we bumped up against, I was like, well, you know, short of dying, anything that could happen is survivable. So why do we keep ourselves tied into these terrible toxic work situations by lying to ourselves and telling ourselves that we have to because we don't. And, you know, the more people who realize that, the more these toxic places can't continue to operate. (laughs) Right, Mm -hmm. right, right. There has to be enough people that kind of rise up and say, you know what, we're just asking for some basic stuff here, right? We just Mm -hmm. want to be able to have a decent work-life balance. We want to enjoy being at work. We want to have the kind of skills we need to do this job effectively because, you know, veterinary medicine is similar to mental health in that we didn't go into this thinking it was going to be stress-free. You know, nobody no. becomes a counselor because they think, well, this is going to be a piece of cake job um, <laughs> where I, I make millions of dollars. You know, it's no. just not what happens. But if other things work, if you have a boss that supports you, if you enjoy your coworkers, if you feel like you get good training, if you feel like you have a voice, if you feel like people are open to change, it's amazing what we the kind of joy we get from our workplace if that actually happens. And so practice owners being resistant to that really kind of blows my mind because it doesn't really cost any more money. And frankly, you when you don't have turnover, you save money. So yeah. if you can train people and get good employees that stay, you save money in the long run. But again, it's about being short-sighted versus long-sighted. Yeah. Mm. I mean, and many veterinary practice owners are veterinarians without any sort of business training at all. Right. And when right. I say many, I mean almost all of them, mm-hmm. um, unless it's a corporate practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that it's easy for veterinary practice owners to get caught up in very, very short-term things because in the beginning, that's what they're having to do. They're having to make enough to pay the rent. They're having right. to, you know, they have to keep a small staff. They have to just, just get by. But after a certain number of years... Our goal doesn't need to be just getting by, you know, and as you pointed out, giving people the skills that they need, the breaks that they need, the support that they need helps you meet the bottom line in ways that are probably not measurable. I wish I could point to some sort of study. I mean, it would be interesting to look up and see if people have tried to quantify this, but I don't know if it is fully quantifiable. I just know that I have seen a lot of really amazing people leave this profession and it it was because they didn't have the support that they needed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a shame mm-hmm. um, because we want this profession to be populated by people who continue to care and do the best job possible. And if those people are continually tread upon and, and beaten down and they finally leave, it, it dilutes the, I mean, it, it leaves behind the people that don't care. Right. 
Yeah. 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 Well, and you, I think you alluded to this just now about the, well, not alluded to, you said they don't get any bit, they don't have any business training. And I think that's yeah, the zero. case for, for a lot of private practice owners with that are counselors and they struggle oh. to be business owners because they didn't go into counseling because they care about business. They go into counseling because they like to counsel, but you own a business, you have to think like a business owner. And I imagine that's probably what happens with a lot of practice owners too, is that they don't get training on how to be a good business person or how to be a good manager. You know, what does it mean to supervise people? And how do you boost morale? How do you take care of your employees? It's just not something most managers, regardless of the field they're in, get trained in. There are some places that apparently do a great job with that, but I don't think it's the general culture of most workplaces. I think it's usually people just start a business because it sounds good or because they want to be their own boss or they get promoted because they've been around for a long time. But it's not because I have a strong drive to have a business that's profitable and sustainable and offers an amazing service. And I want to have a team of people who are healthy, happy employees. Like that is maybe what people would love to see happen, but it's not something people are trained in how to do. Yeah. Mm. Quick sidebar. If you have not read The E-Myth Revisited, you should because it covers many of these topics, not necessarily about mental health, but about how to build a team, how to lead how to kind of balance um, the entrepreneurial spirit with the technical aspects of running a business. And it plays right into some of the things that we're talking about. Sidebar over. <laughs> Not a paid endorsement. <laughs> Just a <laughs> straight up recommendation. Like one, but that was nice. <laughs> I have a good commercial voice. You do. Yeah. <laughs> Earlier we were talking about work-life balance and boundaries and how those things are super important. How would you define work-life balance? I would say uh, the best way to conceptualize that is that I have a very purposeful mix, and I think purposeful is an important word, of time spent at work and time spent with, because work is obviously part of life, but time spent doing things outside of work that I enjoy. So, you know, if I think about it being purposeful, this is different than, and this is what I hear with some folks, is they work their 40, 50, 60 hours a week, and then they, they are so wiped out from it that then they come home and they veg out in front of the television until they go to bed and they get up and they do it five times a week. And then on the weekends, they try to cram in all the stuff that they didn't do during the week, spend all day cleaning the house. They may maybe do something with their family, but it's really kind of like families at the very bottom of mm. the priority pyramid, marriage pretty low on the priority pyramid, but it's very much work, veg, and then do it over again. And so vegging is not purposeful leisure time at all. Do we ever need to veg? Sure. But what really recharges us and helps us feel refreshed and re-energized is doing things on purpose in my free time that benefit me in some way. So whether it's exercise or whether it's knitting, it doesn't matter, but it's something that feels good to me to do. And so I think when someone has good work-life balance, it doesn't necessarily mean balance as in 50-50, that I spend 50% of my time at work and 50% not, but that I am able to have a healthy attitude about work. I can leave work at work as much as possible. And that is really hard for a lot of people, <laughs> yes. but that I can just let my drive home be where I put it aside. I mean, as a therapist, I have to do that. I can't bring oh, everybody's yeah. stuff home with me every day. I would be in bad shape. So I have to be able to, to say I did the best I could and I need to put it aside. So part of the balance is that I can leave work at work 
And then when I'm not at work, I'm able to enjoy the time by myself or with my family and that I take care of things that that are important to take care of. Nothing seems to suffer. Does that make sense? Like Mm -hmm. the things I choose to put my time into all get what they need. Now, would some of us like to maybe have less than 40 hours a week at work or 50 hours? Sure. But that I work what I'm supposed to work, what I commit to working. And I have good boundaries about that. I'm not working 10 hours over every single week. And that I then am doing lots of stuff in my leisure time that is recharging and re-energizing for me. Then I would say I've struck a good balance between my work and my life. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, I think of boundaries. You have to set boundaries for yourself just to say, you know, I know that I have X amount of work to still do, but I'm going to make it a healthier decision to leave it here. It'll get done and mm-hmm. go home and, you know, spend that extra couple of hours that you might have been spending at work doing something that you enjoy or spending time with your family. But also you have to set boundaries with your employer, because if you say, for instance, continue to do work in those extra hours, trying to get stuff done, it may become an expectation. And so you have to kind of tell them, you know, no, sometimes, which is what we were talking about earlier. What would you do if, say, your employer was not respecting those boundaries? Can you give me an example? Say that, you know, oh, I have these callbacks for lab work that I was going to do, but I decided to wait and do them the next day. And maybe a client got upset because they thought that they were going to get their lab work information that day and they call, they're angry. And then your employer comes to you and said, you know, you were supposed to usually do this every night. Why didn't you do it on this particular night? Because now I have an angry client. Well, so, you know, there's a lot of things that could potentially play in here. So, you know, if it was a matter of I left early or left work on time and really maybe should have stayed for just a minute to finish that because I don't normally do it, then that would be, you know, something maybe I need to say, you know, I, I probably should have stuck around. I'll call that client and, and take responsibility for that. But if it's a matter of maybe I'd already stayed late and had been stayed late two or three nights. And so, mm-hmm. you know, to say I chose not to do it that night, if my boss were to come to me and say, this person's super mad that you didn't call them, I'd say, well, it was after hours. I have worked over two nights this week and what needed to get home. So um, I'm happy to call them today if you'd like me to. But I think it's that very, what people don't do a really great job of, especially women, is being very matter of fact about it, you know, because we tend to either almost cower into ourselves because the boss is shaking their finger at us. And so we need, and, and this is also something I think comes a little bit with age, because when you're my age and you're getting a little closer to 50, I don't give a shit. So if mm-hmm. somebody is going <laughs> to like shake their finger at me, I'm going to be like, eh. Yeah, you don't get to do that. I, you don't get to decide the rules for me anymore. But I also am my own boss, so I have a little more flexibility to do that. But what I would love to tell my younger self, who actually was very assertive and probably to the point that I got myself in trouble by being a little rigid about my boundaries sometimes. But most women um, don't do a great job of being able to just say that. No, I didn't stay late last night, but I'm happy to take care of that today. Would you like me to do that first? Or would you like me to go take care of the folks in the lobby? You know, mm-hmm. like something along those lines that, that just kind of says your finger wagging is not going to work. I didn't do anything wrong. So there's nothing to write me up for. I don't have anything I need to remediate. So I'm just going to say, you're right. I didn't do it. And here's why I didn't do it. And I can do it now if you'd like me to. And it's not about being cavalier. It's just about 
being matter of fact. If I didn't do anything wrong, I don't have anything to be sorry for. Even if somebody wants to try to shame me or shake their finger at me or, you know, parent, be parentified with me, that doesn't work if I don't let it work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I did something wrong, I should totally own it and fix it and take responsibility. But if I didn't and my boss just wants to be bitchy or a jerk, then that doesn't, it doesn't have to work. I don't mm-hmm. have to be intimidated by that. Oh, that sounds yeah. easier said than done. It yeah. is easier said than done. And I can say that because I'm not standing there with my mean boss shaking her finger mm-hmm. at me. So I understand that. <laughs> but I do know that like when you get to the heart of it, if I haven't done anything wrong, you can't write me up. Uh, you can try, but I'm not going to sign it. And again, at the end of the day, I am choosing to work here. I'm choosing to work here. I'm not obligated to be here. So I'm also choosing how I allow myself to be talked to. So I get to decide that too. And so, you know, if my boss screams at me in front of a patient or a client that I need to go in the office and shut the door later and calmly be able to say, look, I understand you were upset, but I really need to ask you to not ever yell at me in front of another staff member again. That was really humiliating and made me look very un- made the whole situation look very unprofessional. Mm-hmm. But people are like, I could never. Why? Why could you yeah. never? Because you're going to get fired because you asked your boss not to do something that is a total asshole thing to do. If I get yeah. fired for that, well, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's literally asking him not to do something that he would expect from you as well. So. Right. right. Then that's a tough one, I think, for a lot of people to kind of wrap their head around. Yeah. So tough why, Lauren? <laughs> well... <laughs> So, as, mm, okay. <laughs> oh, Am I living boy. in like dream world where this kind of stuff no. is okay? No, 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 no. I don't think you're living in dream world. Okay. Um, I don't. I think that for people like me who live in anxiety castle, uh, mm-hmm. which is a dream world adjacent, you know. You're across um, the moat. Yep. Okay. It's got alligators in it, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I start the snowball, okay? Mm-hmm. And JJ and I were talking about the snowball a couple of episodes ago when I was talking about, like, curse on the podcast, yes or no? Will it end my career? And then I was like, okay, like, let's calm down about that. The snowball okay. is alive and well. Right. So I would say, especially at different times in my life, as you said, when I was younger, could I have done that? No. After my experiences in a... I am a therapy goer, always have been since I was a a child, okay? But it's really only been in the past few years that I've, like, I mean, really invested fully in, like, being like, okay, like, we're gonna fucking do it, you know? Like, um, we are diving in with both feet here, and, like, we're gonna personal growth it all over the place. Um, (laughs) So I've had, in the past few years, you know, times when I've had to say, hey, you know, the way that we're interacting right now, the way that you're trying to interact with me is not okay. And I've had varying levels of success in achieving that. Sometimes it's very easy. And sometimes it's incredibly hard Uh, with certain people. Some people really, really know whether they're doing it on purpose or whether they're just very talented. They really know how to button push. Mm -hmm. And when they get in that, I call it a rampage. Okay, there are certain types of people and I've had a few employers that fell into this category and some who didn't. 
But for that type of personality, they may be normal most of the time. And then something happens and it might not be related to anything you did. I mean, it might be completely unrelated, something that happened at home. But they're the type of person who, when they walk into the clinic, have the ability to shift the entire Even the air in the clinic shifts. And I don't know, I'm an empath. I feel and experience other people's emotional states in a very real way, and it impacts me. And it's like, I don't know, this is going to sound real woo-woo, but it's almost like the... Like I can feel the the changes in the air waves or whatever. Like I just their aura. I mean, I have no idea what you call it, but something the energy I can feel it, and it, it it's like thunderclouds come in, you know. You and I'm just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. And so for people, and I think empaths are often introverted because we spend so much time experiencing other people's shit that we just have to like be like I. I got to take a break from this. And so there are some people who are not exhausting to be around. We talked about that before. Those people are people with quiet minds, right? They have quiet vibes coming off of them. Even if they're upset or whatever, it's not an aggressive thing. But then there are other people who have this just very aggressive, like all the time energy. And then when something sets them off, they're the type of people that come in, curse, throw things, throw chairs, you know, you get equipment thrown at you, Mm -hmm. um, stuff like that. Like, I wish that that was unusual, Dana, but in a veterinary setting, I'm here to tell you it's not. It's a daily occurrence. Some of these people, yeah, they've gotten away with this behavior. I don't know why, but they come in and they just pitch a fit. And then, then after that, they act like flipping everything's normal and nothing has ever happened. And it's very confusing for someone like me who wants everything to be regimented and with a reason behind it. And if I'm angry, I feel like I have all my little reasons laid out about why. Here is my dissertation about why I'm upset about what happened. Dealing with that sort of person for me is very hard. And I think that for whatever reason, from the time I was very young in veterinary medicine up through now, I have encountered that personality type a lot. And I I don't know what it is about veterinary medicine that attracts it, but I don't know why people do that. But in dealing with those kinds of people, when I've tried to say, hey, the things that you said to me are not okay, they just have a way of being like, well, I was just blown off steam. I'll talk to you however I want, you know, that kind of thing. And just not completely refusing to like have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I made the noise (laughs) because for that type of person, I don't know. It's almost like they've set a boundary where they're like, I don't care what yours are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. My boundary is I don't care about your boundaries, you know, or I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know, but maybe I'm just. No, I, I see what you're saying. And I think that people like that. It's just a matter of conditioning. They've learned that being a bully results in people conceding and giving them what they want, right? Oh, yeah. And so it is a matter of the time to recondition someone, you know, and you may or may not stick around long enough to do that. But I think enough saying, uh-uh, 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 you know, I, it's funny because I've met people who in, in like a large female workplace had this one male coworker who the women would be all worried about what the boss was thinking or saying, or was going to come in. And the dude was like, why are y'all worried about that? I, he's just a dick, you know? And they, he would just be the one being like, and maybe it's because his experience was he wasn't treated the same way, but oh, it, there yeah. also was, I do think just, he kind of didn't take it personal. He's like, yeah, he's a jerk. So why are you letting that bother you so much? Why are you going home and complaining about it all night long? Why are you letting it dictate? 
dictate to you how you feel about yourself because you you don't even care what this guy thinks, you know? So right. it was able to almost uh, compartmentalize this boss. I was reading, I'm reading this book called Not Nice right now, and it's about people pleasing. It's fascinating and it's fantastic. And I've recommended it to just about 90% of my caseload. And I'm about halfway done. But he talks about this idea of something called, I think he calls it an energy bubble. And he describes that like you picture that you have a like a, a, a bubble around you that could be any color you want it to, but it's it's got like a semi-permeable membrane. So you can allow things to come in that are positive that you want to come in, but that things that are negative don't pass through the membrane somehow. I know Ooh, that's not how I cell like membranes that. work, but it, so it's sort of this visualization of not taking on somebody else's shit is basically what he's describing is so that I can see what's going on around me. And I recognize that if this boss is coming in, slamming things and throwing things around, that that's not about me. And I don't have to take that on. And I'm not responsible for fixing it. And even if he or she chooses to yell at me, it doesn't change the fact that I haven't done anything wrong. I like the idea of the energy bubble and just kind of visualizing this. He, he says his bubble is green, but like this blue, nice. mine would be blue, um, mm-hmm. bubble around myself that allows things in that I want, but that it's it's basically a reminder of I am not responsible for somebody else. I'm not responsible for their behavior. I'm not responsible for their feelings. I'm not responsible for how they think. And so it allows me to have a little bit of emotional distance from this person's tirade because the anxiety tends to make me want to say, oh my God, what did I do? And, and what is this going to mean? And what's the yeah. rest of the day going to look like? And what if I get fired? And then what if I get bankrupt? And then what if I die because I'm bankrupt? Like, it's like, I've gone 50 miles down the road and all that's happened is my boss is coming in acting like, you know, a very unprofessional person. I'm not going to lose my job. And if I do lose my job, I'll get another job. But it's to, do you see what I'm saying? So it's not about, yeah. I don't care, but it's about, this is not my problem. I'm not responsible mm. for fixing this. And I'm also not going to reinforce by cow- reinforce your behavior by cowering to it because your behavior is not okay. Man, mm. I like the idea of the energy bubble. Yes, me I too. I thought it was neat. Mine would be orange. Nice. You know, like predators leave me alone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but like secretly, it. I'm a non-venomous caterpillar. <laughs> right. That's good. I like it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Good what. to know what's going on in that bubble. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If sometimes right. you can invite people in your bubble, but otherwise I, I, I like, I like that a lot because mm-hmm. you know, I'm about personal space. So oh, I yeah. can like, all right, my bubble's being penetrated and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, JJ will reach out and gently just touch me on the head a few times. <laughs> and that's like, that's my hugging. Whoa. That's like a, getting a hug right there. Like, <laughs> Oh. That is like an ultimate JJ sign of affection is like, she pats you on the head and then she leaves. <laughs> I see. It's good to know about JJ. Sorry. JJ's weird. That's all right. Okay. 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 Uh, yeah. Even one of my email addresses is no hug, JJ. Yeah. <laughs> no touching. When we went um, in one of the other episodes, we talked about uh, going to Baltimore. And so the, the reason that we were on that plane ride is we were going to see the podcast my favorite murder which we both love and are super obsessed with we were going to see them live and (laughs) at that time like they were sold out i didn't tell jj i just bought vip tickets anyway and then i surprised her with them like we were going into the um 
we were entering the thing and I like I had kept it a secret but then there was no way to keep it a secret because we we're going to be like in the front and be like in the VIP area so I was like JJ I, I need to tell you something I don't want you to be mad <laughs> and she was like okay and I was like I bought the VIP tickets because everything else was sold out and she was like okay and I was like so we're going to be in the front and she was like okay and I was like and we're going to meet the hosts Karen and Georgia and she was like okay and like <laughs> it was the most stressful <laughs> they're really nice like and everything but we so like we waited in line after the show we went up and they were super nice and everything and but karen or georgia one was, was like karen karen was like you look mm, what's going on like you don't do hugs and yeah, i was the like the very no. first thing she said she's like you're not a hugger are you and i'm like right no how did you know because i'm like <laughs> trying to I see, I mean, as we're waiting in line, every single person that's come up there hugging them, and I'm, like, mentally preparing myself, I'm getting ready for it, I'm like, you know, okay, it's fine, it's fine, they're strangers, and you feel like they're extreme superior beings, they're just people, everything's gonna be okay, so I'm, like, you know, cheerleading myself all the way, and, you know, of course, I'm like, you know, she goes first, she hugs them, it's like, oh, yeah, and then it's my turn, and and I'm like, I, I feel like I have this, like, facial expression of like total acceptance of what's about to happen and i mean like <laughs> reading me like a book karen goes you're not a hugger are you i'm like shit how did you know <laughs> and she goes no it's fine we can tell handshakes are fine i'm like bless you bless you for being so perceptive even though i thought i had my i had i thought i had it all all worked out but no that what are you gonna do if you guys get famous and you have people lining up to hug you JJ? i'm scared celebrate throw a party wow. with dollar dollar bills their hair will you just like pat each fan i mean no uh, because that's <laughs> reserved for people who are special uh-huh yeah <laughs> Wow. I mean, she's going to wave at them. Hi. Right. I mean, I, I. Air high five, sterile high five. Yep. <laughs> it's just do the bump elbow. And I'm like, no, there's certain times where it's, I got to get over myself. It's not about me. But if it's like a greeting thing, I'm like, all right, I, I can do the side hug. I see people coming at me. Some clients want to hug me sometimes. And it's, yeah, it's awkward. Most of them ask, though, which is nice. Yeah. They, Most of them. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's not like it's a, I'm going to fall apart if somebody hugs me. It's just for my husband. I, I hug him all the time. Sometimes he's like, will you leave me alone? <laughs> Thanks for that, Ben. In case you forgot what he looked like. <laughs> but I tried to work it out from where it comes from. And I think it was kind of like a body image issues where I feel like nobody wants to touch me because I feel like I'm gross. So that's kind of where it started. And then it just kind of escalated to like, now it's like a defense mechanism. And mm. so that's where I've tried to, you know, pinpoint the source. It's still, it, it was hilarious when Karen like pinpointed, Hey, mm-hmm. you're not a hugger, are you? I'm like, damn it. <laughs> I thought I was doing a good job. A good job of hiding how uh-huh. you feel. I thought I had my mask of like, I am a perfect, acceptable hugging person. Come forth and let us embrace. <laughs> and yeah, but I was very grateful. There was like handshakes and then it wasn't awkward anymore. Yeah. After the pandemic, I don't, are we going to be hugging? I mean, I don't mean me and you. I mean, like, <laughs> it may general... turn into a perfect world for JJ. I don't know. <laughs> Oh boy! Yes, am I? Is a brave new world for you, JJ? You're we're all set. <laughs> so we recently had uh, a listener write in and ask about um, non-work related activities. So, say for instance, some clinics like to get together and go out to eat. Um, some people will try to get together some sort of fundraiser or things that are 
you know, they're not necessarily work related, but activities that it's almost like you're expected to go. Um, Some places will come right out and say you have to go. Some of them it's just implied. Like if you don't go when it's the next day and you come back to work and the employer's like, so where were you? Why didn't you come to this event? You know, or sometimes they'll kind of uh, use it as like a team building exercise. And if you're already, if you're in an environment that's not great, I mean, the last thing you want to do is spend another two or three hours with people that you don't necessarily enjoy spending Mm-hmm. 10 hours a day with. So I guess the, the question was, should you feel obligated to attend those type of things? And in some cases, should you feel you should be compensated for them? Huh, that's a great question. Um, so should you feel obligated? No, no. Your time outside of work is your time. So I would say, does it make sense to go? You know, there, there I've certainly done a lot of stuff outside of work because it made sense to go, you know, because if I have a good work-life balance, I'm not going to mind going to something outside of work occasionally, but it's not, you can't tell me I have to do something outside of work that I don't get paid for. It, you, you just can't. So you can't mandate right. unpaid work activities. I'm pretty sure it's against the law, as a matter of fact. So um, <laughs> you can suggest it strongly. And I'll come if I can, you know, but again, if I can present myself in a very matter of fact way, I had a lot of stuff off at the past. If I invite, I feel insecure about it. I mean, it's like it's, it's that whole aura that Lauren was talking about. Like if I kind of put out that I'm worried about this, it's almost like it's like blood in the water for a shark. It's like, mm-hmm. hmm. So she does feel bad about this. Murder, I'm going to get her, mm-hmm. you know, but it's if I can just say if I, I can't even imagine if a boss said, where were you last night? I'd be like. I was home with my family. Hope you guys had a good time last night or ha- heard it was a good time last night. Did y'all have fun? You know, like, again, I can just take it whichever direction I want to. I don't owe anybody an explanation about what I do in my free time. It, it doesn't matter if they think they deserve an explanation of my free time. They don't, they don't get it unless I give it to them. So I can choose to share or I can choose not to. Maybe there are times, like when I first started in the field, I probably was a little more inclined to go to that kind of stuff because I thought I had to. Um, but I think a better frame is, am I choosing to go to this because it would be beneficial for me? It would be beneficial for my career. Um, you know, is it a networking event or a team building event that I think would be helpful? But you're right, JJ, I'm not going to take time away from my family um, to go team build with a group of people that um, we got bigger problems than a ropes course, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that I um, want to be a team player. I want to do a good job. I want to go above and beyond, but above and beyond doesn't mean that I do tons of extra stuff, especially stuff I don't get paid for. So I think shifting that language from I have to, to I choose to is important because if I'm choosing to go to this and I'm still pissed off about it, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. So I shouldn't do it because I'm I, I'm choosing to and be mad. I'm going to choose to and go and enjoy it, or I'm going to choose to not go and not feel bad about it. I like it. Yeah. One problem that I have had in the past is is the feeling guilty part, mm-hmm. and also feeling like I had to that that like I owed someone an explanation. Mm-hmm. But what you just said was you don't you don't period. owe anyone okay. an explain <laughs> an explanation of what you do when you're outside of work. No. Yeah. I mean, except your family, but like certainly not your boss. So going out for drinks one night a week or whatever in some sort of happy hour situation is not going to fix a broken work culture. What fixes a broken work culture is top-down management changes, Mm -hmm. modeling the behaviors that you want, compensating employees well, and providing environment that makes people not want to potentially get into a fender bender to avoid. Right. 
Yeah, something I was just thinking about was how you would feel as a regular employee versus if you're in management and management that's above you has concocted this group thing. It, you, if you're like a middle management, you feel like you're obligated. I mean, I know I did. I felt like I was obligated to attend anything and everything because I'm in that position whether mm-hmm. I, I really wanted to do it or not. And I did it most of the time I wanted to. But there was times where I was kind of like, you know what, I'd really rather stay home, but I feel like I have to set an example. And now that I think about it, was I setting the right example? Should I have pushed back to upper management and like, you know, maybe this isn't the best idea. Maybe the way to reward the team is to give them, you know, an extra hour off paid or something mm-hmm. instead of going out to eat pizza one night or something. I mean, I know as an employee, I would have enjoyed that mm-hmm. a little bit more to you know, say, hey, you get to go home an hour early today, but you're still going to get paid for it. Well, that's a great example, JJ, of of how I think a lot of times we miss the opportunity to think outside the box because we hear you have to and then we go, OK, mm-hmm. and I'm annoyed about it and I'm resentful right. about it, but I'm going to go because I have to. Right. But if I can say, OK. So I don't particularly, I don't want to. And and I was in middle management for a long time, which is not a fun place to be because people underneath you are unhappy and the people above you are unhappy. And that's not, a, it's a lonely place. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think if I could say, hey, you know, I, I think that's really nice. You guys want to do pizza, but I think what the staff would like better would be that you give them an hour off. No, we're definitely going to do pizza. And you say, okay, well, I just want to let you know I won't be there um, because I am not going to be able to be there this evening. I don't even have to say because I'm going to be home with my family. I could throw that in there, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to come if you do pizza. So, mm-hmm. I hope that, you know, I hope you give everybody else the opportunity to decide whether they want to come or not. But I think it's realizing that I can offer other solutions. I can say, hey, what do you, have you thought about this? Can we try this instead? I don't have to just say because the boss said so. That is a it gets really ingrained in us that because somebody's in charge, it means they're right. Mm. No, it just mm. means they're in charge. Oh. So, oh, oh, oh. Right? so I need to sometimes <laughs> we need to say, but is it right? You know, can I is there an opportunity to think outside the box? What if it's actually wrong? Do I have a, is it okay for me to voice that? Sure. But I have a responsibility to be assertive and respectful as I do that. But it's okay to not just be like, mm, the boss said so. The boss is not the expert. They're just mm. not. They're just the boss. And it, they have an important role, but it's no more important than anybody else's. And I think we tend to put bosses on this pedestal of superiority. They're not superior. They can think they are all day long, but it doesn't mean that they actually are. So if we can treat them like they're just, they're another person that works here that ha- does have authority but they're not better than me. And my voice is important too. Then, you know, it changes the way I view the everything at work. I don't feel resentful and put upon because I'm choosing to be there and I'm deciding that I actually want to do what the boss is saying to do or that I don't want to do it. And I'll just face those consequences. I, I have to go home and read a book while my cat sleeps on me. That's right. Right. It's, it's important. I do. important. <laughs> Your cat needs that. Mm-hmm. It is important. Mm-hmm. Yes, Fraggle needs it. Yeah. Dana, when you were talking earlier about you were giving an example of someone who goes to work and then work takes up so much emotional time and energy that you don't have time to do anything else. Like maybe you have the like t- literal hours, but you can't. You just can't. <laughs> right. So it's work, veg, work, veg. And man, that I thought you were like reading a page out of my diary Dude, or something. me too. I was <laughs> totally. Like, I was like, do you like know what I do? At my no, it's house? just yeah. a problem. It's a problem. You installed a hidden camera <laughs> several years ago at my home. 
<laughs> I see so few people that really, really like their jobs. I mean, very yeah. few. It is a minority of people who are like, my job is awesome. That's so unfortunate. It's super unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Think how much time we spend working. Our our lives are too short to be in a job that sucks. Don't you spend, uh, people spend more time at work than like any other place, right? Even oh, with their families, I, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Unless you're doing something that you really enjoy. And um, I wish that I had been able to embrace this sort of information when I was in other positions. Um, It's much easier, as you said, when you own your own business. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, But I still spent months being like so i'm gonna get in trouble for this and then i thought about i'm being like well so by who like who is gonna who, who am i gonna get in trouble with right and i could never come up with an answer and i finally realized like oh i make the rules for me uh, but then it seems like what you're saying is that's always true you always make the rules for you you do just thinking errors get in the way of that potentially yes nobody nobody decides for me and to me, it's a bit of a victim mentality to say somebody else does, that I have to do this because so-and-so says so. But, but you don't. You don't. You just are doing it because you want to avoid the consequences that you think are going to come if you actually don't do it. Or you're doing it because you want to get the rewards from fo- for following through and being compliant. You like getting that paycheck, you know. But yeah. either way, if I can go into work with the mindset of I'm choosing to be here, it it really changes everything, whether it's about work, whether it's that I'm choosing to exercise versus I have to, right? How many people say, well, I have to go run. No, you don't. You're choosing to go run. You have the opportunity to go go run. You have the privilege yep. to go run. Those are completely different ways of conceptualizing something that might even be a challenge to do. But, you know, anytime I want to throw a pity party about, I don't feel like I don't want to run. I think about people who can't, right? <laughs> that physically can't run. They can't, <laughs> but I can, you know? And so it's not a, I don't have to, nobody's, you know, twisting my arm and saying your life is going to be, we're going to end your life if you don't go out for a run. So it's the same thing with work. It's the same thing with going to the store. I don't have to go to the store. I choose to go to yeah. the store. I don't have to Being be nice in a to relationship. my husband. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be nice yeah. to him. I don't have to do anything he says. I choose to because I love him. Right. <laughs> my kid right. doesn't do anything because yep. she has oh. to. She does it because she chooses to. She wants to avoid a consequence or get a reward, but I can't make her do anything, right? It's the same thing. My boss can't make me do anything. I don't have to do anything. I just do it because I want to get a paycheck or because I want to keep my job or because I don't know, but I don't have to do it because she said so. That's very liberating. I feel very strongly about that, but this is just something I wish. I wish we did a better job of helping young professionals understand this, that your career is your choice and where you work is your choice and how long you stay there is your choice. And how you interact with people is your choice. All of it is. You are in charge of you and you make your own rules. And so you decide whether if there's rules at your place, you decide whether you're going to follow them. You make that your rule Um, or you say this rule doesn't make sense. And I need to have a conversation about that. And if that conversation doesn't help, then I need to think really hard about why I'm continuing to choose to work here. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Man. Yeah. Go back in time to 15 years ago. I know. Yeah. Please load that into my brain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one thing I thought about um, about this podcast before we even started was about self-care and what that even means and about having work-life balance. And I think with even with training counselors, we talk about self-care, but we don't even I was thinking I was talking to a client today who is a therapist and she's like, you know, they tell us in grad school, you need to have good self-care, but they don't tell you how do you do that? When you are working full time, 
how do you do all the things you like to do when you are busy with work all the time? You know, and so I think even how we talk to up and coming professionals about how do you actually take care of yourself and what does that mean? Self-care is not just pedicures. That's one thing, but it's a whole lot more than that. Self-care is having boundaries with work, knowing where I'm going to set a limit. Self-care is being assertive and speaking up for myself. You know, that's just as much a part of it as getting a pedicure or a massage or a bubble bath. Like it, it's all about how do I take care of myself so I can function as the best version of myself in all the places where I exist. And I don't think, I think we really could improve in pretty much all professional training to help people do a better job at that. Yeah, beautifully put. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Man, I cannot wait to listen to the audio of this episode. <laughs> Well, I hope what doesn't happen is that your listeners are like, wow, she has no idea what she's talking about because that's not real world, but it really is real world. It's, people are so entrenched in the have-tos that they don't even think outside the box at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dana, I super appreciate you being here. Yes, thank enjoy you it. so much. And I know that the listeners are going to enjoy it too because I think veterinarians have started talking a good game about mental health. Good. Well, guess what? We got to start having these conversations with mental health professionals and they need to be the guiding force behind changes that we make. If we keep doing crap the same way, we're going to keep getting crap results. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness. Mm -mm. It is not. No. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you have stories, veterinary stories, veterinary cases, crazy client stories, anything you'd like to share with us, shoot us an email at introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.